Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton and this is Geopolitical Economy Report. I'm excited to start a new series with a good friend of mine and a, and a big influence for me, Professor Radhika Desai. She is a professor of in, in the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba and the author of several books. And th in this series, we're going to be discussing a new book that she just published at the end of 2022. It's called Capitalism, Coronavirus, and War. And the idea with the series is we're going to be going through her book and discussing the important topics that she addresses, which involve the the new Cold War against China and Russia, the NATO proxy war in Ukraine, the coronavirus pandemic, and the failure of Western neoliberal responses to the COVID pandemic. We'll also be discussing the capitalist system, capitalist crisis, the different phases of capitalism. I mean, this book really covers so many topics. It's going to be an exciting series. And I do want to uh, announce to people something very cool about this book, which is that it is it was made open access with the help of a foundation called Knowledge Unlatched. So if you go to the Taylor and Francis Group website, which I'll link to in the description below, you can download and read Radhika's book, Capitalism, Coronavirus and War, Geopolitical Economy for free. You can get a, a PDF version of it. So you can follow along with us in our discussions. Now, um, Radhika is also the convener of the International Manifesto Group and the director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group, organizations that I work with that do excellent work. And Radhika has been one of the creators of this new movement, this new discipline of geopolitical economy. And what we, before we talk about your book, her book, we wanted to start today with the discussion of the discipline of geopolitical economy, why it's necessary, and what distinguishes it from other disciplines. Um, in fact, Radhika wrote the book on geopolitical economy called Geopolitical Economy, and it's actually a decade old now. She was extremely prescient. I'll link in the description below to this book as well, which was published at Pluto Press. It's called Geopolitical Economy After U.S. Hegemony, Globalization, and Empire. And Radhika, in this book, I think you were extremely prescient because you were arguing a decade ago that the narrative of U.S. unipolar hegemony it was a flawed one from the start, but especially, of course, the narrative that U.S. hegemony is somehow natural, that the U.S. dollar-based system is somehow natural, and that the global economic system is going to forever be based on this and this kind of Francis Fukuyama idea that neoliberal economics and U.S. hegemony is the end phase of human history. You were talking about the not only emergence, but already existence of a multipolar world a decade ago. So can you talk about why you felt it was necessary to develop this concept of geopolitical economy and why existing academic disciplines like, for instance, international political economy or international relations were not sufficient? Yeah, sure, uh, Ben. Thanks, first of all, for having me and for doing this series, which I'm also very excited to do with you. So, uh, yeah, um, the origins of the book, uh, of my 2013 book, Geopolitical Economy, uh, actually lies in my work in the previous couple of decades, because um, I became a young academic. I started out my academic career in the early 1990s, and just around that time, um, the discourse of globalization was just getting going. And right from the start, I had always been a skeptic of this discourse. There are many other skeptics, you know, I can name a few, but, you know, there was a, 
very famous book called Globalization in Question. And there were many other people like Robert Wade and so on, who also wrote books and articles about the uh, how the, uh, the discourse of globalization was really uh, uh, overestimating the extent of globalization and underestimating the centrality of national economies in the world economy then and today and so on. So I'd always been a skeptic and I thought I would uh, basically try to write a book that showed how uh, the discourse of globalization was not really a academic theory, but an ideology that issued in many important ways from uh, U.S. state sources, uh, which was a way of managing U.S. hegemonic decline. So at that time, Ben, I actually, partly because, you know, the people who have contributed to the idea of U.S. hegemony, many of them are so erudite and many of them are very left wing. I... Um, I had assumed that, you know, the narrative that, you know, the U.S. is hegemonic, that it previously Britain was hegemonic and so on, that this was true, that the world economy requires a presiding nation state, which will, you know, uh, 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 which will essentially uh, oversee the productive expansion of capitalism over many decades. And then there will be sort of one hegemony after another and so on. So I had accepted this discourse. But once I started working on the book, I realized Oh, my God. Like, first of all, there is just I mean, there are as many definitions of hegemony as there are writers, perhaps more, because each writer also kept shifting his definition. You know, for example, I show in geopolitical economy that the uh, American um, uh, international political economist Charles Kindleberger or economic historian, he, he goes under many names. Charles Kindleberger kept shifting and over different editions of his book, kept shifting the definition of hegemony. And he was one of the originators of this anyway. Point is, I realized that even the idea that the U.S. had been hegemonic, um, ever been hegemonic, was not very credible. And then I realized that what needed to be done was to criticize the existing approaches, because what globalization and hegemony had in common was that they were uh, they they were what I call cosmopolitan discourses. So these cosmopolitan discourses, they assume that the world economy is a seamless uh, is seamlessly united. National borders don't matter. So under globalization, basically, the world is seamlessly united by markets and no nation state matters. Under uh, U.S. hegemony and U.S. empire ideas, which became very current in the early 2000s, uh, the idea was that the world economy was united by a single state and that all other states did not matter. So I realized that the problem was these cosmopolitan discourses. And so the, it was important to insist that actually the world economy is indeed divided into national economies and that they uh, are engaged in particular forms of struggle. And then the other thing that happened is that as I was work, reading and trying to figure out how to conceptualize the actual intervention of uh, nation states in the world economy and in world politics and so on, what I realized is that there was this old idea, uh, which is usually attributed to Trotsky, but I also showed that it has deep roots in the work of Marxism and so on. So what I realized is that 
the, the this idea is 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 uneven and combined development and that a proper interpretation of this idea would help us to understand what really is happening at the international plane in the capitalist world so eventually so to to make a very long story short what i've done in geopolitical economy is propose a new marxist way of understanding the world economy which is opposed to the cosmopolitan ways of understanding it now there's a further complication here because many marxists themselves are the uh, are in the you know they are in the forefront of saying not only is the world economy indeed seamlessly unified a single economy in which national borders don't matter there are no national economies um uh, so marxists are in the forefront of not only insisting on that but even claiming that marx thought so so a large part of the theoretical underlaboring that i had to do to write geopolitical economy was to investigate what marx engels what later marxists and the general marxist tradition had actually said about this this because quite frankly if you think about it marx and engels were writing at a time you know in the latter part of the 19th century by the and you know by the 1870s in particular it was very clear that national states really mattered countries like germany the united states japan were all using various forms of state intervention to further advance there to turbocharge their economic development and so on so how i mean they would have been very bad theoreticians not to notice this and indeed i find that not only did marx and engels fully understand the centrality of nation states in capitalism but they marx even has uh, 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 you know uh, uh, passages which i which i cite and and, and i discuss where he, there is actually embedded in his ideas Uh, uh, something that he calls the relations of producing nations now if you think about it what does this mean it means that there are producing so that involves the economy and there are nations which involves the politics so there is a certain idea of geopolitical economy already there in marx and so what i've done is i've developed this and in the process of developing this i've also have had to end up being quite critical of in major dominant in, in fact i should say tendencies within western marxism particularly the bulk of what passes for marxist economics and we can talk about that later but that in a gist is the reason why i wrote geopolitical economy yeah and what i find so refreshing about your work radika is it's such a good corrective to kind of social, many social theory graduate seminars in the united states which you know are allergic especially to anti-imperialism. I remember when I was in undergrad which was, you know, the first decade of the 2000s that Hart and Negri's empire was still very popular. You could say it was kind of hegemonic. And now I mean looking back at it, it's just so laughable that this book was taken so seriously. I mean, I should also point out um I when I learned this, I immediately could see how fraudulent the, the argument in Hart and Negri's empire was. Um in 2001 the New York Times did a very positive review of all about empire promoting it and then you might might have to, have to ask yourself wait if this book is such a radical you know socialist critique of imperialism why is the New York Times which has supported every crime of imperialism going back decades which is an appendage of the US government basically why is the New York Times promoting uh, Hart and Negri's empire and what's also funny is in the same article from 2001 they talk about how empire is the next big idea the buzz is growing and they quote Slavoj Žižek 
who called it, quote, nothing less than a rewriting of the Communist Manifesto for our time. This was July 2001, of course, a few months before 9-11, and then basically everything that Hartnegri wrote in Empire was proven irrelevant by the war on terror, and then subsequently the 2008 financial crash. And today, where anyone, so for people who haven't read Hartnegri's Empire, essentially their argument is what Radica was refuting a moment ago, this idea that nation states are no longer relevant to the capitalist system. There is a global capitalist system. All capital is transnational. Corporations are replacing the states. And that really there is only one state, which is the United States. And it's basically the so-called Marxist version of Francis Fukuyama's end of history. It's essentially the same parallel to that. But of course, Radica was able to see through that. I'm wondering if you just want to briefly maybe respond to that concept, which again, I mean, I, I was an undergrad in the in the 2000s, and that was still a very prevalent idea. No, absolutely. So first of all, let me tell you that my own impression of Hartenegri's empire is that actually, remember, books take a long time to write. It may have been published in 2001, but it was written in the period before. So really, it's a book which is actually about globalization. Uh, but of course, by the time it's published, George Bush Jr. is in power. All his henchmen are talking about empire. You know, we are the people who, who are going to make an empire and we are in the age of American empire. And we make reality and you guys only study it. And all this kind of really macho rhetoric was all over the place. And the, so, so the point here is that they named their book Empire just to be really relevant, but it's actually about what people were talking about in the previous decade, which was globalization. So one of the things I do in geopolitical economy is that I point out that uh, the rhetoric of globalization really emerged and kind of reached a peak under Clinton. In fact, Clinton was even dubbed the globalization president. And much of this rhetoric of globalization emanated from the Clinton administration. So everybody who wanted to sort of be taken seriously by the big mainstream media started using the term globalization. And then by the following decade, when George Bush Jr. was in power, it was all the talk was about American empire. And what's really fascinating fascinating about it, Ben, is, you know, there is a certain, you know, that, that is so obviously there were a lot of people like the New York Times writer and so on, who were actually saying that US empire would be a good thing, you know, and, uh, you know, that the world would benefit. And, you know, and, and not only that, certainly the US had all the power to create an empire and so on. But what's really astonishing is how many Marxist writers also went along with it. Um, and that really comes out of, and that's part of the reason why I so criticize uh, what's often passes for Marxist economics is that too much of Marxism, not everybody, but too much of Marxism is really kind of a, uh, a, 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 a um, lionization of capitalism and its productive dynamism. And so one of the things I do as well is I call in my book, I say that in various other writings, I point out that this interpretation uh, of Marxism is not Marxist. Marx, Marx actually emphasized capitalism's deep contradictions and capitalism, that capitalism was going to end. And, you know, in, in this book, as we will talk about the various chapters, we'll talk about that as well. But Marx emphasized that capitalism was going to end, that it was too deeply contradictory to last forever. But in this Schumpeterian idea, what you have is capitalism simply goes from strength to strength. Every crisis that it experience is, experiences is just a lo little local difficulty. So anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that 
so, so, so these discourses of empire were also endorsed by many people, you know, Marxists. And you know what the irony of that is that by uh, so. George Bush Jr. takes office in 2001. And already by the middle of that decade, both the war in Iraq, which it had initiated, as well as the housing and credit bubbles upon which what passed for American prosperity in that decade rested. Both of these things were in crisis. And so, you know, people say that Hitler's thousand year Reich lasted only 13 years. Well, George Bush Jr.'s, you know, uh, uh, American empire, which didn't even have a time limit on it, it was supposed to be perpetual, didn't last more than half a decade. So there you have it. Well, and this brings us to not only your 2013 book, Geopolitical Economy, but your latest book, um, Capitalism, Coronavirus and War. An argument that you keep stressing is that even at the moment of peak kind of unipolar hegemony, if you look at the global economy, you also see simultaneously the rise of China, which is which is always the elephant in the room. I mean, now it's funny, it's it's very antiquated to go back to this kind of 2000s era view that China was simply just, you know, allied with the US and that China was part of the US capitalist system. Obviously, everyone can see clearly that's not the case now. But I mean, we saw the, this tectonic shift in the global economy starting really in the 2000s, especially, I mean, you can go back even further, but with the rise of China and to a lesser extent, you know, also Indonesia, Malaysia, to a lesser extent, India. Um, I mean, we see a massive rise in, in Asia, also Brazil, the creation of the BRIC system. This is all happening, much, much of it's happening during the Bush administration. And because the, the world is focused on the war in Iraq, which was such a blaze, brazen act of neocolonialism, it is easy to forget that actually the seeds of this multipolar world were already sprouting. Not to mention, you know, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, who came to power in 1999. I, I mean, Lula. So it's, it's interesting to see that there is a lot of discussion today, even in the mainstream financial press. We see the Financial Times constantly talking about the new multipolar financial order. But you've been saying this for over a decade that it, we've already been in this financial order. So maybe you can explain why you wanted to write your new book, Capitalism, Coronavirus and War, and how it grew out of your 2013 book, Geopolitical Economy. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think I'll, I'll sort of emphasize the earlier book a little bit more because there's a couple of other things that I should say about it in order to make it make very clear what is the relevance of my new book. So you see, in geopolitical economy, you know, you mentioned the rise of China and uh, and so on. So the geopolitical economy's concluding chapter is called the multipolar moment. And one of my arguments is that the cosmopolitan views of the world economy, globalization, empire, in the 19th century, we had free trade. None of these perspectives really make sense of how the world economy has developed and, um, and why is it that we are experiencing in the new uh, in the new uh, uh, millennium, uh, why we were experiencing the multipolar moment. Remember, the millennium began actually by Jim O'Neill of Goldman Sachs writing his famous, putting forward his famous BRICS thesis that these other economies, uh, particularly, well, at that time, it was basically uh, in, uh, India, China, Brazil, and Russia. So these four countries were really together going to account for a bigger and bigger weight in the world economy. So, so, uh, 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 
what what i what i wanted to do so 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 this critique of the cosmopolitan approaches was also necessary because without a different approach you cannot understand how we got to multipolarity so what geopolitical economy did is it made three important arguments so first of all it said that nations or nation states are material that there are indeed national economies and this is for the simple re and this is especially true of capitalism indeed one of the implications of this argument is that if we are ever going to have a unified world a single world a single political entity that unifies the whole of humanity it will only be in socialism because capitalism actually requires the nation state form and it requires that there be a plurality of nation states and the uh, and so the so 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 and, and 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 nation states are critically important because capitalism is contradictory because capitalism is contradictory every capitalist nation state must manage the contradictions of capitalism including its repeated crises and including its tendency to uh, 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 to lose political legitimacy because after all capitalism is based on inequality it is difficult to justify so in these ways nation states have always been centrally implicated in both the uh, emergence but then also the maintenance of capitalism and capitalist nations i argued um uh, manage the contradictions of capitalism both with through domestic actions such as for example regulating capitalism or bailing out capitalists or creating welfare states that are depending on the situation because nation states can undertake a variety of different actions and internationally powerful nation states will try to uh, uh, ma manage capitalism's contradictions at the expense of subordinated nations and territories. And this is what we normally call imperialism. And the idea of the uneven and combined development is simply this, that the development of capitalism is uneven. It does not uh, capitalism does not emerge uh, uh, and spread uh, evenly throughout the world uh, uh, at all. It, it, it develops in lumps and clumps. But once it develops in certain countries, it is tremendously consequential for the rest of the world for the simple reason that the rest of the world now faces a choice. Either accept economic subordination to those countries in the name of free trade and openness and so on because what free trade and openness amount to is that a given country is laid open to uh, uh, uh to become a market for uh, for excess commodities of the dominant countries to become an investment outlet for the excess capital and also to be a source of cheap labor and raw materials. This relationship does not create development in these countries. It in fact creates underdevelopment, but that so so countries face a choice of either accepting that rather miserable scenario or fighting back and engaging in what Trotsky, for want of a better word, called combined development. Now, this is also variously interpreted, but combined development in the way I interpret it in geopolitical economy means the undertaking of state-directed, often protectionist industrialization. Uh, and the first instances we see of this is when the Germany, the United States, Japan, etc., industrialize in order to oppose British domination of the world market. And many uh, people, including the Germans, the Americans, and so on, they're extremely clear about this. Unless you do something like this, your fate is going to be to become and remain an agricultural appendage 
of Britain. So in order to oppose British dominance on the world market, you have to engage in protectionist combined development. And one of the implications of this is it is not free markets that have spread, spread productive capacity around the world. It is such combined development. And if you look at it in another way, what is this combined development? It is simply the um, uh, it is simply the uh, 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 um, uh, uh, resistance to imperialism. So the effort on the part of the dominant capitalist countries to maintain the unevenness of capitalism is imperialism and efforts on the part of countries to resist it and to develop their own productive structures rather than permit underdevelopment is central to anti-imperialism. And so, so this is, uh, so, so in this also what uh, geopolitical economy does is it unites what I see to be a correct and accurate interpretation of Marx and Engels's work and that of many later Marxists with the developmental state tradition, uh, which has uh, particularly over the last many decades, particularly over the neoliberal decades, has insisted that there is no development without massive state intervention. And that's why China is important because especially after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, China has represented the strongest challenge to um, to, un, uh, to imperialism uh, and therefore also has executed the greatest industrial revolution in the history of humankind. Britain may have been the first, it may have been followed by an even bigger one in the United States or Germany, but China has, has experienced the greatest in terms of the actual magnitude. And so geopolitical economy was also very clear that combined development can take both capitalist forms and socialist forms. And indeed, what's and it also said that, you know, in our time, particularly in the second post-Second World War period, the socialist forms have been the strongest. And this has, of course, been further underlined by the continuing development of China over the past decade. So that's the materiality of nations argument, which is deeply bound up with the uh, uneven and combined development argument. And in this, if you think about the, the, it the following way, uh, in this, what becomes clear is that the cosmopolitan ideologies of free trade, globalization, U.S. hegemony and empire, these discourses are nothing more or less than the discourses emanating from the dominant parts of the world system. And their function is also the same as that of dominant ideologies within capitalist countries. You know, Marx says somewhere that the ideas of in in every society are the idea the ruling ideas of every society are the ideas of the dominant classes now at thanks to capitalism at a world scale there can never be a single state a single world state but nevertheless there are dominant states and you can see that the uh, that the cosmopolitan ideas are the ideas of the dominant state because they serve the interests of the dominant state by preaching the gospel of openness free market etc what they are telling the rest of the world, what they are telling third world countries, everybody that is not part of the imperial core, is that you should not try to develop in by through protectionism, state direction, etc. Leave it to the free market, which means subordinate yourself to our capital and its requirements. That's what is being told. And so the implication of this is to further points, which is that if this is the case, uh, if, the, if, the, if the driving motor of international relations is uneven and the uh, uneven and combined development, that is to say the effort to create and maintain imperialism and the effort to resist it, 
if this is the case, then it follows that what you uh, what you are going to see is ever greater a number of countries undertaking combined development because capitalism has nothing to offer them. And the more combined development spreads, the more it will create opportunities for other countries, weaker countries to undertake it because there are, there are more centers of productive power around the world. So the story of the world uh, economy is not the ever greater spread and penetration of markets. It is not that of successive hegemonies, but rather spreading multipolarity. So British uh, dominance was already ended by the contender industrialization and combined development of the first bevy of powers that contested British industrial dominance. Uh, and we'll come back to that later. But then what you what what you began to see is the further spread of and and and, and yeah, so so British and and British industrial British dominance was already undermined by them. And by the time the United States came along, wanting to emulate Britain's dominance uh, 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 in some fashion, in a lighter fashion, because it would never acquire an empire the size that Britain had. So the British American policymakers said, well, we'll settle for making the dollar the world's money. This was always going to be impossible for reasons and a large part of geopolitical economy talks about that. But basically, geopolitical economy also argues that because the world was already multipolar, while American hegemony could never be realized, American ambitions for hegemony could never be realized, while a certain period of British dominance was inevitable, by the time the Americans came to attempt it, American hegemony was impossible. And therefore, globalization, US hegemony, empire, these are all discourses of US attempts to try to impose their uh, uh, dominance over the world, attempts that have never been successful. So that's what I argue in geopolitical economy. And uh, a large part of the, of the narrative is really about how the dollar system, which was really the main mechanism which the Americans chose, with which they were going to try to dominate the world economically, of course, supplemented by their army, but nevertheless, the dollar system was the key, that it has never worked in any of the ways, despite the... and so. So the reason why everybody thinks that the dollars, dollar has been safely and stably the world's money and look at how powerful it is and so on. This impression has been created by a veritable cottage industry of largely American academics whose work is to talk up the uh, talk up the dollar system and try to erase, evade and muddy the waters when people try to investigate the contradictions of the dollar system. So anyway. So this is where we were already at. And so then, uh, and I have I had written geopolitical economy and over the next decade, I continued developing the ideas of uh, geopolitical economy in various ways. And then we were, uh, oh, and I, I should say one other thing. So, and I was beginning to really see a lot of new things that were going on that, that deepened my understanding of how to develop geopolitical economy. And then the pandemic came along. And ironically, just a little before the pandemic, what had happened is that a small community group had asked me to give a lecture on, you know, asked me to invite me to give a lecture. And then we went back and forth about, you know, how I would, I would uh, uh, what I would talk about. And in the end, they said, from what you're saying, we want you to uh, uh, give us a lecture uh, on the title, Does Capitalism Have a Future? And so I said, well, 
Sure. And I, I began my lecture by saying this is the title and the short answer is no. And then I spent the next 45 minutes explaining why. And this had been in February of 2020. And then the following month, of course, the World Health Organization declared a pandemic. At the time, I had been watching all the shenanigans in Washington, particularly the Federal Reserve pumping trillions of dollars worth of liquidity into the markets, trying to shore up asset markets that were crashing. They were, they were falling like stones everywhere. And so I was watching all this uh, and this completely fit my uh, understanding. And so that weekend, the weekend after the WHO, uh, declared a pandemic. I owed a, a local. Uh, I owed the Canadian Dimension magazine, which is a major left magazine in Canada. Uh, I had agreed with them the previous uh, uh, earlier in the year to give them a, an article a month, and so the editor Saigonic is writing to me saying, "Where's my article?" So I said, "All right, I'm going to write an article about what's really going on with the pandemic, not in terms. You know, I'm not a virologist. I'm not an epidemiologist." I was interested in what it was doing to the to the US economy, to the world economy, et cetera, but particularly to the economies of what I call in capitalism, coronavirus and more, the neoliberal financialized economies. So this uh, this is what so 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 that weekend I wrote an article entitled The Unexpected Reckoning. Uh, coronavirus and Capitalism. And in that I argued that what the pandemic was doing was it was going to expose the uh, it was going to expose the productive debility of capitalism productive debility which is entirely accounted for by the fact that it had become so financialized and so based on overly long and tight and stretched supply chains so we were going to see that despite all the glorification of capitalism as the uh, most productive economy in the world actually the leading capitalist economies of the world were going to be found wanting and secondly that all their productive debility but also their extremely obscene inequalities were going to be on full display. And I pointed out that the rot has gotten so deep that it has even affected the politics of capitalist countries. And the politics of any country is its primary coping mechanism. And I said that even this coping mechanism is going to be found wanting. We had already seen that the politics of the leading uh, neoliberal financialized countries like the UK and, and the US had already produced Brexit. They had produced Trump. And what we were going to see was a further uh, deterioration of the politics of these countries, which has again proved to be true. So Capitalism, Coronavirus and War began as a book, to, uh, to, as a, a book discussing how the pandemic was telling on capitalism in the sense, you know, the world to tell on something is to do actually two quite different things. One is you reveal their dirty secrets. And the other is that you are a burden when you say that, you know, oh, X, Y, Z illness is really telling on him. What you mean is it's really weakening that person. So the pandemic was going to both uh, 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 expose and weaken the uh, uh, extremely unproductive, predatory, uh, 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 speculative, uh, financialized neoliberal capitalism that we had. And that's how the book started. And then there were various delays in submitting the manuscript. So what I found is that, you know, I, I had promised fine, my final deadline was the spring of 2022. Um, and uh, 
of course, by that time, the war was on, the, 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 the US-led war against Russia over Ukraine, the proxy, in which Ukraine is being used as a proxy. That war had already started. And uh, what I found as well is I couldn't not talk about it because what that war had was about was directly connected with um, with um, uh, 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 with the debility and, and and the problems of capitalism that I was talking about. Because one of those problems, you know, you mentioned Fukuyama earlier, Ben, and you know when when the Soviet Union collapsed and people like Fukuyama were proclaiming that you know. Liberal democratic capitalism was the acme of human history. You know, once everybody achieves that, there is no need to make any further changes, etc. Uh, so, what, uh, you know, first world countries had already arrived there, and the rest of the world was going to catch up, and that would be the end of history. And everybody at that time had two big expectations. One was that the world would be peacefully united under. Uh, 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 peacefully united under U.S. hegemony, under uh, U.S. leadership, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we would be witnessing a unipolar moment. And secondly, everybody expected that the world would enjoy, therefore, a peace dividend. Neither of these expectations came true, and the reasons are interconnected. The adoption of the neoliberal model after um, the adoption of the neoliberal model after uh, uh, the crisis of the 1970s was always advertised as, you know, this is going to restore capitalism's productive dynamism. Capitalism has been stymied by all the state obligations and social obligations and regulations imposed upon it and the taxation and so on. And if we release it from these uh, restrictions, capitalism will flourish once again. The forces of competition are going to restore capitalism's mojo and so on. None of this happened for the simple reason that capitalism was no longer competitive capitalism. Capitalism had already become monopoly capitalism almost a century before. So uh, in th that monopoly capitalism was not going to respond to the freedoms given to it with, by displaying competitive vigor. It was going to use and abuse these freedoms to go from being any, you know, from whatever little productive capacity it had to becoming rather than productive, predatory and speculative. So all the Western economies, to the extent that they adopted the neoliberal model, began to see deteriorating economic circumstances, growth rates everywhere were low, investment rates were low, etc. So there, so instead of unipolarity, what you began to see, as Jim O'Neill could already see at the turn of the, uh, of the century, was that other countries which were less neoliberal for a whole variety of reasons, including China, which was the opposite of neoliberalism, it was socialist, were developing much faster. And that was actually leading to a uh, uh, the shift uh, beginning to lead to a shift in the center of gravity of the world economy from the United States for the East, particularly towards China. And the reason why the world did not enjoy a peace dividend is that the United States, as the leading capitalist power, reacted to this not with grace, but with aggression, not with grace saying, yes, you know, we've always talked about the development of third world countries. So, you you know, if you talked as much as you did about the development of third world countries, you think that they would welcome this development. But no, they reacted to it with a military aggression against whichever, or particularly against those countries that, uh, you know, were 
sort of in that sweet spot between you know being you know where the united states could reasonably think it could overpower them and which were challenging us dominance over the world system so there was no peace dividend etc cetera, etc cetera. so anyway this uh, war had directly to do with those impulses which you by the way began to see more or less as soon as the soviet union had uh, essentially uh, ceased to be so uh, you had the Iraq war of the early 90s you had Yugoslavia then you got Afghanistan Iraq etc uh, etc et all the uh, various quagmires in which the United States has been involved so to me capitalism coronavirus and war is really about the type of capitalism that is propelling sorry the type of capitalism in which we are now living which is on the one hand propelling american aggression but on the other hand also ensuring the demise of this form of neoliberal financialized capitalism absolutely and i think one of the things that that's so useful about this book and what i really enjoyed about it is that you do provide a, a rather comprehensive analysis of the historical development of capitalism in its various phases and when we think about history we tend to think about historical development as a series of crises, right? And especially if we look at this, the history of, of capitalism, um, you know, what's fascinating is you, you mentioned the concept of combined and uneven development and how basically all of the large imperial powers, all of the so-called advanced com economies, the rich economies, they develop their economies through one, colonial pillage, but also protectionism. And in, in your book, you actually also cite some of the, the research of Ha Jun Chang, who's a, a Korean economist who's done great work on this. He's, he has a book that influenced me a lot called Kicking Away the Ladder, exactly. in which he discusses how all of the wealthy economies became rich through, again, colonial pillage and protectionism and how the, 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 the British economy had some of the most protectionist measures in the world, some of the world's highest tariffs until the peak of the British empire and then the British Empire began promoting free trade doctrine, right, to its colonial subjects as a better way of exploiting them. And in your book, you continue that thread. It didn't just end that that development of capitalism in, in different forms didn't just end. Unfortunately, I think Hajun Cheng has contributed a lot, but he his work does kind of end there, or maybe with the, the emergence of neoliberalism. And you continue that thread going forward. And there's a really uh, in, in the introduction, which we're going to talk about in, a, in another episode as well, we're not going to talk about all of it today, but you have a really important section here that I think would be a good a good subject to continue our discussion now, which is how you just, you argue that the peak of capitalism was actually not neoliberalism. It was 1914. It was the, the eve of World War I. That was the peak of capitalism. And as you said, since then, we've been in living in, in a monopoly stage of decay. And you also point out that the so-called golden age of capitalism that we constantly hear, you know, paeans written to of the, the 50s and 60s, the golden age, that was actually one of the, an, another era where there were significant protectionist measures. And it was the Keynesian era. You point out that after World War II, you saw the golden age or long boom of capitalism. And you quote the legendary historian Hobsbawm, who pointed out that a return to laissez-faire was out of question after World War II. Certain policies like full employment, of course, containment of communism, but also modernization of economies, I would add industrial planning, they all had absolute priority with strong government presence and that these economies 
were forced to run in ways that would have been rejected previously as socialist. And this is in the wreckage of World War II, right? And you point out, bringing us to today, that expecting unipolarity assumed that neoliberalism was reviving capitalism, when in fact, capitalist economies in the neoliberal era malingered productivity, productive, um, productively, growing slowly, boosting inequality, increasing misery, dividing societies. Only the speculative and parasitical financial sectors prospered in the neoliberal era. And then the neoliberal capitalist world failed to subordinate China and Russia, the newly emerging Russia. So that that brings us to today, this new era that we're in. I mean, so you, again, I said that history is often told as a series of crises, right? So we have World War One, we have the Great World War One, the Great Depression, World War Two, um, you know, the Bretton Woods, uh, end of Bretton Woods One, uh, Vietnam War. We have all these series of wars and crises, and today we have. In 2020, we or going back before, in 2001, we have 9-11. In 2000, we have the, the dot-com bubble bursts. Then we have uh, the 2008 financial crash. Then we have the you know uh, uh, 2014 US-backed coup in Ukraine and the Western sanctions on Russia. And then finally, the, the 2020 pandemic. And then the 2022 escalation of this proxy war in Ukraine. So these series of crises that, and at each moment, capitalism changes, it, it evolves in new ways. And your argument is that since 1914, capitalism has been decadent. And it's simply a matter of what you call zombie capitalism since then. No, I mean, you've, you've touched on so many things. I mean, there's just so much I want to say. So let me let me just begin anywhere. I mean, in your list of crises, by the way, I would add one other, which... Um, I uh, particularly noted, um, uh, uh, which is that, you know, in 2019, apparently, so just the year before the 2020 crisis, that was the year of apparently maximum political protests around the world. So in that sense, you know, what was all, because remember, you know, uh, at the after the 2008 financial crisis you know every a lot of people expected and i was one of them i did write an article saying you know this is the end of neoliberalism but of course the end of new you know uh, in in terms of the uh, 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 in terms of the uh, scholarly evidence of the uselessness of neoliberalism for developing any economy i mean there were already piles of evidence and if that evidence had been you know, you know, had been taken seriously, we would have turned away from neoliberalism a long time ago. But our political elites don't take power in order to do what the scientific evidence says. They actually take power in order to keep and perpetuate the capitalist system, which in our time, as you say, is a decadent, uh, neoliberal, financialized, predatory, speculative, inequality producing, unemployment generating, misery producing capitalism, which is also, by the way, completely incompetent at handling public health crisis like the coronavirus crisis, and it's not going to be the last one. So anyway, so, so since all of this was actually becoming more and more clear, capitalism was simply not delivering for ordinary people throughout the decade of the, two, of the 2010s. And so by 2019, I think the, the, we, we can surmise that people around the world, whatever the, you know, 
in every country, the difficulties will take a different expression. It will be expressed differently. But the fact is that capitalism was not performing and people were fed up to here. And that's why you had 2019 as a year of maximum protests, which also, by the way, continued through the pandemic in various ways, including Black Lives Matter and so on. Now, you know, let me let me just get gra grapple with the um, the whole issue of the the early 20th century also not just being a peak of imperialism after which it began a long decline, but also a peak of capitalism. And this is one of the things I've developed further in capitalism, coronavirus and war. Elements of it are there in geopolitical economy. But this point has become blindingly clear, particularly to me, had become blindingly clear uh, 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 you know, over the years after I finished writing geopolitical economy. So in order to understand that, I'd like to take you back to, to Marx and Engels, because you see what people don't realize, you know, all the people who lionize capitalism, including many Marxists, don't realize that Marx had written in, particularly in one chapter of volume three of Capital, which is chapter 27, uh, Marx had basically designated the monopoly phase of capitalism as the peak of capitalism. Uh, so the idea is generally something like this, that, you know, and he, Marx, you know, Marx criticized Adam Smith a lot, but he also took some things from Smith because Marx was always a very fair man and he always knew where the meat was. So what, uh, in any thinker, basically, and it's all, that's why you have, you know, Capital Volume 1 and all the volumes of Capital have such long footnotes because he was very scrupulous about where he got which idea. Anyway, Adam Smith, uh, uh, basically is associated with the notion that the increasing division of labor is the uh, uh, motor of the development of the forces of production. The more we cooperate, the more we, and then the more complex ways in which we cooperate, the more we are going to be able to specialize in doing certain things and to increase our ability to produce at greater and greater levels of efficiency. That's a very simple idea. Most people are familiar with it. Now, Marx basically says that capitalism has the early phase of capitalism is its competitive phase. And in this phase of capitalism, Capitalism, what you have is the division of labor among firms. So there are small firms, they are all competing with one another, and they are also specializing in the production of different things. And then you have, uh, and, and, and market competition is regulating their relations among one another, playing a very critical part in forcing firms to keep their costs down and so on. So this is the competitive phase of capitalism, but the natural outcome of competition is monopoly. Why? For the simple reason that in the process of competition, which always weeds out all the inefficient producers, eventually only one or a handful of efficient producers are left standing. And also because in manufacturing in particular, you have economies of scale. You know, if you have a factory, you will know that to produce a thousand units of something may be much more costly per unit than to produce 10,000 units of the same thing because, you know, certain costs are the same. And so you increase, achieve economies of scale. And so this combination, this, this tendency of competition to produce monopoly was very real. And what Marx then also pointed out that the monopoly does something else. It represents another qualitative advance in the socialization of production, what Adam Smith called division of labor, Marx also called socialization of production. And basically, the idea was that 
you know, in competitive capitalism, there is a there is a specialization and socialization of production among firms. Now, what you will get is the increasingly complex division of labor within a firm. Now, what happens in the market is always seen as you know competitive and you know the realm of freedom and uh, equality and contractual relations and so on. What happens within the firm? takes place under the authority of the capitalist. It is the authoritative division of labor that obtains. And so what Marx is saying here is that the uh, that when capitalism arrives at its monopoly form, all the wonderful discipline of competition will no longer be there. And the, the economy will be ripe for takeover. So let me just uh, uh, cite to you a couple of uh, short passages from that chapter of uh, volume three, chapter 27 that I talked about. So in this one, Marx is talking about the rise of the joint stock company in which different types, you know, uh, the capital of many different individuals is brought together into to create a single firm. And so he says that what was once individual capital now receives the form of social capital, capital of directly associated individuals, in contrast to private capital. And its enterprises appear as social enterprises as opposed to private ones. This, Marx says, is the abolition of capital and private property within the confines of the capitalist mode of production itself. So what Marx is saying is that the monopoly phase is preparing the ground for the transition to something beyond private property, beyond capitalism, which would be socialism. Further, in another passage, uh, just a couple of pages down, he says, such, such monopoly joint stock production is a necessary point of transition towards the transformation of capital back into the property of the producers. Because remember, Marx's point about capital is that it is actually the production of socialized labor. It's not the production of the private capitalist. So this type of joint stock production uh, and, and monopoly company production is the necessary point of transition towards the transformation of capital back into the property of the producers, though no longer as the private property of individual producers, but rather as their property, as associated producers, as directly social property. It is furthermore a point of transition towards the transformation of all functions formally bound up with capital ownership in the reproduction process into the simple functions of associated producers into social functions. So what Marx is saying is that once you get monopoly capital, it makes no sense to leave these things in the hands of, in private hands. The fact is it is seen by everybody that you cannot run these big monopoly companies without the contribution of every one of the people that is involved in it. And Marx thought that this would be accepted and, and understood and that essentially this would form the transition to socialism. And in many ways, I should say that one should not forget that, you know, of course, the uh, the monopoly phase also immediately led to imperial competition and the great the First World War, which, as I argue, also inaugurated, in fact, a 30 years crisis because the First World War and the Second World War were umbilically linked to one another. So uh, it was a single crisis. It was a single imperialist crisis and capitalist crisis, because it's also contained the Great Depression. Now, the, at the end of the Second World War, not only did the Russian Revolution take place, but there, there was a wave 
a revolutionary wave that swept across Europe and even came to North America. Here in Winnipeg, we had the 1919 general strike. In Germany, you had the 1918-1919 so-called November Revolution, which was put down, by the way, by an early version of the fascism that we would see only a decade later in full form. Uh, there were Italy's two red years. There was a, a so, uh, the social democracy took power in Austria for nearly a decade. There was Red Vienna. There was a huge revolutionary wave. So in a certain sense, Marx and Engels were not totally wrong. But this revolutionary wave was not in fact, successful. Only the Russian Revolution was successful. There's a whole bunch of stories that I won't go there because I want to continue on the main idea. So the peak of capitalism in monopoly was already there. Uh, capitalism also experienced the big crisis of the Great Depression and so on. And this was resolved rather than by a socialist victory, by the rise of fascism. And uh, then you had the Second World War, etc. And the very interesting thing about the Second World War and this entire period is that towards its end, both progressives as well as right-wing thinkers uh, thought that ca the capitalist system was going to move towards socialism. Uh, John Maynard Keynes and Karl Polanyi thought that this would be the case because remember, basically the 30 years crisis of 1914 to 1945 had totally discredited capitalism. Capitalism led to imperialist wars. It led to great uh, the Great Depression, unemployment, misery, etc., etc. And plus, the mobilization of people during the war had also led various countries to promise uh, their people who were fighting that they would come back to a better society, not the poverty and unemployment of the past. So the quote you read from Hobsbawm really shows that that's in fact what was happening. But the interesting thing is, so John Maynard Keynes or Karl Polanyi both predicted that the world would turn left and look forward to it. People like Hayek also realized that this was a very real possibility and feared it. And of course, they th that's another whole story as well. But then you had the uh, uh, post-war era in which, uh, which is generally described as the golden age in which the capitalist parts of the world, as well as the communist and third world, uh, communist parts in the third world, all, all parts of the world experienced a very benign period of great economic growth. And everybody looked to this and said, you know, what were people afraid of? Capitalism has renewed itself. It is capable of infinite self-regeneration. But, and this is where the Hobsbawm quote comes in. The fact of the matter is that cap it was not capitalism. What created the conditions for the golden age, what some people call the long boom of capitalism in the three decades after the end of the, of the uh, Second World War, were all the socialistic measures with which uh, capitalism was ringed, monopoly capitalism was ringed around. There was a great deal of industrial regulation. There was macroeconomic policy for full employment. There was the creation of welfare states, universal education, universal healthcare in many countries, and so on. And all these things, all these measures created the condition for the expansion of demand that created the golden age of capitalism. But the underlying system remained capitalist. It eventually led to crisis in the 1970s. The, it was primarily a crisis of the capitalist world. And then there were the, the capitalist world was at a crossroads. Should you deepen the socialistic 
measures of the post-Second World War period, or should you roll them back as the neoliberals suggested? As we've already discussed, the idea was that you roll these, these measures back and capitalism would get its its uh, mojo restored. And we all know what happened after that. So the, that is to say the neoliberal era of giving capitalism the freedom has not restored its productive dynamism. So when you take into account all of this, what you realize is that capitalism was already senile back in the early 20th century. The only reason you got the big uh, boom was because of the socialistic measures. The 40 years of neoliberalism since the 1970s has done nothing to restore capitalism's uh, uh, virtuous productive character and has shown us just how venal capitalism can be. What is the point of keeping this system going? But that is indeed what our capitalist states are doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the idea that the golden age of capitalism was, you know, laissez-faire free market capitalism is absurd. I mean, it was Richard Nixon himself who said, we're all Keynesians now. Of course, that was at the end of the Keynesian era. But let's not forget that uh, Richard Nixon imposed price controls in response to the inflation crisis in the United States. That was the first time price controls were imposed since FDR, since, you know, the, the aftermath of the, the Great Depression. And today that would be denounced as socialism. Can you I can never imagine Joe Biden imposing price controls. First of all, he wouldn't do it because he's ideologically a neoliberal. But second of all, the Republicans would say that he's a socialist. It's just completely off the table. And yet it was Republican. And, and you know what? Uh, other thing, Ben, it would actually prevent the price gouging on which the big corporations depend these days, which is such a big factor in today's inflation. Exactly. And then those are many of the same corporations that finance the political campaigns of politicians, especially in the United States, where bribery is legal, thanks to Citizens United. And there are so many other topics of discussion um, I think this is actually a good moment to conclude the introduction to our series, and then we'll continue discussing the first chapter of Radhika's book. And again, I want to emphasize that this book, Capitalism, Coronavirus, and War, A Geopolitical Economy, can be downloaded for free over at the Taylor and Francis website. I will link to that in the description below. And that's because of generous support from the foundation Knowledge Unlatched. So this is the beginning of our series. Um, I'll be discussing the, this book with the author Radhika Desai. She is a professor at the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba, the convener of the International Manifesto Group. You should check out their YouTube channel. Um, I participate in many of their events and they're always very good discussions. And she's also director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group and you can follow her over on Twitter at Rad Desai. Anything else before we conclude here, Radhika? Um, no, I think this has just been a really fun discussion, Ben, and I'm looking forward to all the other ones. And uh, you can mention that if you want that. My, my website is still under preparation, but uh, I do have an academia.edu website. And if people want, they can, if people are members, they can go and uh, find my things there or they can become members. It's free. So, uh, and a lot of my writing is available there. So. Excellent. When, and I invite people to, when we start the series, to read along with us. Um, I've been doing another series with a friend of the show, Aaron Good, who's he turned his dissertation into a history of the U.S. empire. And we've been going through that as well. So it's cool to be able to do these series with the authors and people can follow along. So um, thank you, 
Radhika, it's always a real pleasure. Thanks to everyone for watching or listening, and we'll see you next time in part two. Thanks.